0: Hello again, and we're back for episode 27 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with Golf Digest's architectural editor, Ron Witten. Ron Witten can fairly be called the Dean of American Golf Architecture Writing. Since he began working as the architectural editor for Golf Digest magazine in the 1980s, he's been the game's most authoritative and widely read writer on the topic of golf courses and their design histories. Even before joining Golf Digest, he spent years moonlighting as an historian, researching and collecting an unfathomable amount of information for his seminal book, The Golf Course. Written with architect Jeffrey Cornish and published in 1981, it's among the most important and informative golf tomes ever written and assembled. Profiling virtually every architect living and dead and chronicling their designs, The Golf Course, and its revised and expanded sequel, The Architects of Golf, from 1993, have become invaluable resources and did more to shift the focus from the traditional attention paid simply to golf courses and their tournament histories and on to the men and women who created them than any books before or since. In other words, they revitalized the age of the architect. In addition to his regular magazine features, profiles of major tournament courses, travel, and other books, Witten also created the current rating criteria for Golf Digest's Top 100 U.S. and World Courses lists, as well as the various Best New Courses lists, while compiling all the rankings and overseeing hundreds of panelists. For someone like me who aspired to be a golf magazine writer, Ron had the best job in America. Then he took the dream a step further and crossed the thin black line of ink into golf design itself. He's been involved in various construction projects, notably the Architects Club, designed in 2001 with Stephen Kay, with 18 holes that pay homage to the design styles of the master architects of the early 20th century. He'll likely be best known as one of the original creators, along with Michael Herdson and Dana Fry, of Aaron Hills in Wisconsin, a Golf Digest Top 100 course and host of the 2017 U.S. Open. His career and work has always been a kind of beacon to me, and though we've never met face-to-face, I've come to think of him as the Papa Bear of our small industry. I'm a huge admirer, and as you'll hear, it was a real pleasure for me to finally get to talk to Ron. If you love and follow golf architecture, there's really no one who needs less further ado. So let's get right to it. Ron Whitten.
1: Just looking at golf courses. Spent uh, two days with Jim Nagel, the golf architect that, uh, from Force Design. Right. We looked at three William Fillion courses over the last two days. Lancaster Country Club. Uh, manufacturers, or Manny's as it's called, and uh, Philadelphia Country Club. Nice. And then I was looking at Northampton today and going over to Saucon Valley this afternoon. Uh-huh.
0: Do you learn anything new on this trip?
1: Oh, yeah. I always learn things new. I, you know, I, I, it's just... Architecture is never end, never ending study.
0: I'm sure. So you're, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to who's been on the Charlie Rose show. <laughs> I watched that video clip the <laughs> other day, and you came across very well. Were you nervous going into that?
1: Of course, it's <laughs> Charlie Rose. <you>
0: know? <laughs> that had a little bit more of a, of a cultural significance before the whole Me Too thing came through. But
1: he, yeah, he he really surprised me how how well versed he was in architecture. He knew Bill Kors' work and. Very excited about that, and uh, he'd never played Pine Valley, and he was asking me how to get on
0: Pine Valley. <laughs> do you have any tips for that? Can you share? <laughs> do you want to share those? I'll take them. Yeah, I. Um, Let me ask so did, you. You got to know somebody. did Did he? Do you know if he ever got on Pine Valley?
1: Uh, yeah, I think I think you know my boss Jerry Tardy's a member there, and I think he's sponsored him. Oh, that's great to play there. That's great.
0: Do you typically get nervous when you speak? I imagine you do you do a lot of speaking and you know, speak in front of clubs and whatnot. Do you typically get nervous or at this point, I know you're a prosecutor. Did that help you deal with speaking in public?
1: Oh, yes and no. Um I I, I feel comfortable when I when I'm doing it, but when I see videotapes or hear audio tapes of me doing it, uh I am very uncomfortable. I'm um, I feel inadequate. I feel like Oh my God! <laughs> uh, I, I um, I've said it a hundred times. I have a face for radio and a voice for the printed page. I'm a writer, not a talker.
0: <laughs> well, your writing is ex- excellent, but I think you don't. I think you sell yourself short. You're a very good speaker, and you come across on Charlie Rose and other places. I've seen you. The documentary on the American golf course architecture was wonderful. Uh, yeah, you sell yourself a little short, Ron. <laughs>
1: Well, so, you know, you're, it's better to be your own worst critic than have other people be that. Yeah,
0: but I know the feeling. I I've been doing this podcast now for a while, and uh, I cringe every time I go through the editing process. I just kind of want to fast forward through my voice and get to the get to the guests. They're always so much better. So you grew you grew up in uh, a small town in Nebraska. What was what was your lifestyle like when you were a kid?
1: Oh well, I grew right I grew up right outside of Omaha, Nebraska. So it wasn't like I was out in the middle of nowhere. It was just a, um, a suburban town just south of Nebraska, filled with Air Force kids. Uh, Off at Air Force Base was three miles to the east, Papillion, Nebraska. the The high school that was featured in the movie Election, if you remember that with James Broderick and Reese mm-hmm. Witherspoon, that yeah. uh, was that was filmed after I graduated, but uh, well after I graduated.
0: <laughs> you don't have to say um, how long.
1: And uh, you know, I I played, I learned to play golf on the same course that gary wyron did the legendary golf instructor we both grew up in that area and played a little par 33 nine hole course called spring lake park where the last hole was a par three over a busy city street um and it's still there uh, my you know my roots are with public golf I, I graduated from that to a par 67 course elmwood park just south of uh, of what's now the university of Nebraska at Omaha. It was used to be Omaha university and it was a dollar a day. And then, uh, then I went to work on the maintenance crews. And, and so I've always been in, you know, interested in golf. I fell in love with golf design in the summer of 1967 in Chicago.
0: What happened there? I was uh,
1: attending a summer institute for engineering students at Northwestern. I learned the first week that out of 400 of these people, uh, I didn't have what it t- takes to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. They were all brilliant, and I was beyond, you know—I was over my head. Mm-hmm. Luckily, my roommate John Tricano felt the same way, so we snuck out and played golf. We played at um, uh, Evanston Community Golf Course, which is now called Canal Shores. Oh yeah, a little scruffy, par 60 between an elevated railroad and a canal. Dead flat. I mean, you know, this was uh, as as municipal as it gets. I learned many years later that Bill Murray was on the maintenance crew that very summer of 1967. Although I never met him, and uh,
0: at least uh, not that you know of. So, if you didn't know,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, uh, one weekend John's father came into town. They lived in Morris, Illinois, and he was a member of Chicago golf club. He said, we're going to go play Chicago golf club. You want to join us? And I'm you know, I'm in Chicago. I might as well. I didn't know Chicago golf club from Evanston community <laughs> golf course. And, uh, that one just, you know, it was stunning. It was different than anything I'd ever seen. Uh, and, uh, and then two weeks after after that, John and I snuck out again, got class, and went down to Beverly Country Club on 87th and Western, to the Western Open. Uh, John ran out to follow Jack and Arnie, and I just started wandering the golf course, which was long and narrow, a big rectangular, kind of on a plateau that dropped off down into new valley tree-lined, and uh, totally different than Chicago Golf Club, and totally different than Evanston Community, and uh, I just knew right there that every golf course was different and that intrigued me. I came home and tried to read what I could on golf design, which wasn't much. And um, so I would I was going to study it. I, that was going to be my my hobby. And I went to college as a journalism major and I was going to write a book on it. And I worked, then, you know, and then, I, then I got the passion to become an architect and I worked for the maintenance crew of the Country Club in Lincoln, Nebraska and wrote a lot of architects. And this would have been 1960 1970. And they all told me I'd starve. This was the, the Nixon recession where they had wage and price controls. And, and you, you you couldn't buy gas uh, on even or odd number of days, depending upon the last digit of your, of your license plate. and, And there wasn't much work going on. And, and so I decided, well, okay, I'll, I'll go to law school and I'll study golf architecture as a hobby and write a book on it. And I did.
0: I, um, yeah, how's that for calling your to shots? Topeka.
1: Yeah, I I I graduated from Nebraska in 1972 and moved down to uh, Topeka, Kansas to go to law school. I wanted to stay within radio contact of Cornhusker football games, and uh, I had to wait a year to to establish residency, so I didn't pay out of state tuition. And uh, went to law school and and was. You know, spending a lot of time researching and you know, what little travel I could fit in, I did. You know, I got to Prairie Dunes and I got to Kansas City Country Club. And, um, and uh, then Jeff Cornish, an architect out of New England, contacted me, heard I was researching on this. And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm doing the same thing. Why don't we pool our resources? So we did. And the result was uh, that book that came out in 1981 called The Golf Course. Updated uh, 10 years later as the architects ago. Yeah. And as, uh, you know, I graduated law school in 77 and became a prosecutor um, in Topeka. When, when you, Washburn Law School is a great law school for, for practicing attorneys because they had an, an institute there that would allow students to represent indigent clients in the actual court cases. So you got a lot of trial experience. I always felt like I was going to be a trial attorney. And uh, you want to go get a lot of trials experience, you become a prosecutor. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Nick Seitz, who was the old editor of Gofft, just grew up in Topeka and looked me up when he visited his mom one time and um, offered me a job, which I, uh, a full-time job, which I turned on because I was going through a divorce and uh, didn't want to leave my kids. Behind because I would have had to move to Connecticut, mm-hmm. so I, I, he he said well let's let's do some part- time stuff and I did some part- time stuff and then Jerry tardy took over in eighty late eighty four and he, he offered me a job and and again I turned him down and he said well you know let's let's make you a contributing editor and and I want you to do our rankings of uh, he asked me to Devise a system that uh, they could numerically rank the courses one through one hundred. Up until that time, they were doing it alphabetically within groups of ten. Augusta was always number one because it was always A on the first page of the mm-hmm. list. Yeah. And uh, so, I came up with a system that pretty much is still in uh, in use today in 1985, and uh, that's. That's probably going to be my legacy and my curse, is is that damn hundred greatest, um, which, uh,
0: yeah, and you'll, you'll uh, you find know, I, just I as many people in, on both sides of that that issue.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: So, well, that uh, for somebody like me, and I've followed your career since I, I don't remember when, probably late '80s, uh, when I you know was in high school and. That just sounds like a fairy tale to me. Somebody who's been interested in golf course architecture to be able to do that and have golf—I just reach out and basically court you and ask you to come and do these things that everybody else who's interested in golf courses in the world, has, you know, dreams about. It's like a fairy tale. The only thing, the only part of your story that I—I I, I don't really like—is the fact that you're uh, a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. I'm sorry about that. Oh. I grew up outside of Boulder, so we have a little—a little history with you guys. Is there?
1: Well, you know, and and it disappoints me when they left the the, uh, the Big Eight or Big Twelve. I wanted the Big Eight to put back together. Throw Texas out. Yeah. Get the Big Eight back together because those Colorado and Nebraska games were classics. The Oklahoma and Nebraska games were classics. Uh, there just isn't a there just isn't an identity anymore. It was a,
0: a golden it's age. It's all yeah. about money. Now Colorado was just yeah. like a little. They weren't much higher than Missouri or, or Kansas when, most years, but yeah, everything went south when Texas came in. I think just ruined everything. Yeah. That was the 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 beginning of the end. When did you realize that your trip to Chicago Golf Club was really something unique and special? Cuz there are a lot of us who will never get that invitation to play there.
1: Uh I don't, I, you know, I, I guess I've never really thought of it that way. I just, I, I've been one of those guys that's been in the right place for the right time. Uh, I'd say so. When, when, I took the, when I took the bar exam in September of 1977, you had to wait to find out the results. So I went on a little trip with my then wife. We went down to New Orleans for a week and drove back through Texas. And I stopped overnight in Huntsville and, and play, got up in the morning and played Waterwood National Golf Club, no longer there, but it was a Roy Dye course, Pete's, Pete's brother. And uh, I'm out there with, with hitting shots and taking pictures, and I got a sketch pad. And the guy on a Cushman drives by and asks me, "What the hell I'm doing?"
0: And I said, "I'm studying architecture." Did he have a North Carolina I accent? Said, really?
1: Yeah. And he and he said, "Let's get to let's let's sit down for a beer afterwards." And after I got done, we sat down in the in the little. Uh, lounge area and uh, he introduced himself. He was Bill Corey, the assistant superintendent working under J.D. Batten. And uh, we talked for an hour and I thought, I finally said, geez, I better go. I got a wife just sitting back in a motel. Um, but he said, what are you going to do with all this? And I said, I'm going to uh, someday I'm going to write a book on golf architecture. And he said, someday I'm going to be in it. And uh, we've kept in touch ever since. And um been good friends ever since. And it's just uh, those are the kind of that's why I say I just happen to be in the right place at the right time on a lot of this stuff. If I if I'd have gone to law school in at Drake in Des Moines instead of Washburn in Topeka, who knows what would have happened. But you know, I don't know if anybody connected to golf digest in Drake or in Des Moines. Mm-hmm.
0: So Yeah. Now you came to golf because you love to play golf. Did your, did your dad play or your family? What was your family like? Yes.
1: Yeah. My, my dad played and, 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 um, you know, I didn't take any lessons. We just picked it up and like I said, we, we get up early in Saturday, Sunday morning and go down to spring lake and put the ball in the little coil. And when the ball reached the bottom, it was your turn to tee off.
0: (laughs) Um, have you ever been able to put your finger on why there are those of us who are so interested and even obsessed about golf courses and golf architects? Especially considering, you know, I don't what I don't know what the number is. Ninety percent of the people who play golf don't pay much attention to that side of the game at all.
1: I I can only speak for myself, uh, and I've written about this a lot. You know, the right brain versus left brain stuff. I I was a lawyer. I studied the law, and that's black letter. That's right or wrong. There are absolutes, and you can't be creative. Uh, That was the most frustrating thing I had as being a lawyer, because I, I I once in a moot court competition sang an opening statement and damn near got disbarred, even though I was just a college student at that time. Um, What fascinates me about golf design is the pure creativity that. You know, there are no rules. there are no rights or wrongs. there are some accepted standards but but every golf course is different. every architect approaches it differently uh, and that's why I say it's a never ending study because uh, um, it's it to me uh, it's one of the great art forms because you're working on a huge canvas every every canvas is different um, and every canvas is ever changing and I can't think of too many. Other occupations or aspects of art that that involve that. Uh, you know, most artists are are putting paint to canvas or or chiseling something out, and it's it's there permanently. But golf courses are ever changing, and they're and and uh, and there's different thought processes depending upon which what what sort of topography you're working at, what sort of clientele you're providing for. Uh, you know there's just a myriad uh, elements to to go into every golf course, and it I find it fascinating, yeah, it's the creativity
0: i I've often tried to look at golf courses the way that someone would look at movies or art and look at them as something that might be able to be critiqued or put into context, but golf courses are so interesting because they're they're interactive, you know they have to function as a place to play, which kind of throws off. The whole uh, ability to look at them as purely pieces of art, which I agree that they are, but there's that there's that interaction component, which is sort of a you, you meet people, and you know this because of the Golf Digest rankings, who you know say that you can't really criti- criticize golf courses or, or critique those or them or rank them. Uh, so, can, are, to you, is that something that can be done? Can you look critically at a golf course and evaluate it as as it? as if it were a a painting or a movie or a a meal at a restaurant?
1: Oh boy, that's a, that's a a loaded question there because that's what we've tried to do for the last 30 some years. that I've been involved in the golf digest rankings. We've tried to slice and dice the architecture into its, into components and then have panelists, the supposed experts uh, uh, give a score from one to 10 on each of those components. and, uh, And then we, Average the scores and total it up, and the highest score wins. Um, but there are, you know, and, and what I tell our panelists is you're not critics, you're judges. Uh, critics give thumbs up, thumbs down. They have favorites. They, they, you know, they play favorites. Judges try to be objective. And when you're being objective about art forms, it, it, you know, it almost sounds oxymoronic. But we try our best. Uh, you know, there are two two big problems with the golf digest rankings or any rankings, at least golf digest. I shouldn't speak of the others cause I, I'm not familiar with the others. Uh, we base ours on, on a single round by a panelist. They, they score it, they play it and then they score it. And even though I tell panelists go out a second time and look at the course before they leave the property, not with clubs, just go out and, and, and walk it or write it again. Um, it's still based on a single round and, uh, it, Ideally, it would be great if they could play it a second or third time because there's, there's a lot of courses that, for which the subtleties aren't revealed until, uh, until you're familiar with a golf course. But that's a luxury we don't have because, uh, one, we don't want to overextend our welcome to any private club. And, two, I got plenty of other courses I need to have our panelists play. And the other flaw in the system is it, it's therefore based upon first impressions. And as is apparent over the years, a lot of especially with our best new courses, a lot of blitzy courses with lots of special effects made great first impressions and one best new. And they've since kind of um, faded into the background. Uh, there wasn't as much substance, I guess you would say, behind the, the glamour uh, once once that newness wore off. Um, but be that as it may, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's intended as a magazine article. It's not intended as, as a scientific study. It's not, it's not chiseled in stone. It's, we do it every two years, and we keep saying it's just a snapshot of, of, of uh, I want to say, prevailing trends, um, prevailing attitudes uh, among a group of, of panelists who are trained under our system as far as what, what you know when i look at a course i don't look at it in, in terms of our categories i i look at it in terms of an architect trying to figure out you know what what were the compromises that needed to be uh, overcome to create this golf course uh, what were the limitations what was, what was the budget what was the you know, what were the soil types what's the water what's the water source what's all these things you know you look at it in terms of a function, you know, Jeff Cornish used to always preach that form must, you know, follow function. And of course, has to be functional first and foremost. And so, again, my passion is for the creativity parts of it. But having owned a golf course, having been involved in course construction and course design and course construction, it is no easy task to build a golf course. Nobody sets out to build a bad golf course. Uh, of courses, don't turn out successfully. It's because of some issue or another that's that's interfered, and it can be as as simple as a poor choice of turf grass, or as complex as as um, environmental regulations. But cer- certainly, over the long answer to a yeah. long answer to a short question.
0: <laughs> not that not, not that short of a question. They get longer. Uh, w- certainly, there are levels of ability. And a, an ability to to pull it off. It's not. No, I know nobody tries to build a bad golf course, or or not even bad, just not great golf course. And sometimes it's a. It's is it not the capabilities of the people involved? Is that's the reason why maybe they try too hard. Maybe they, uh, maybe they're infatuated with ideas that don't work. Sometimes it's human error, right?
1: Yeah, I. I, I you know, again i i i don't want to i don't want to point fingers i i i would just say part of the study I've made of architecture is to find that every architect has a different approach every architect has a different thought process there are some that are left brain. they're very organizational they worry about the engineering of a golf course and the drainage of a golf course and the you know and playability and those sort of aspects and and um and are less concerned about the gingerbread uh, because it's, it's, um, it's expensive to put in flashy bunkers and that sort of thing. And then there are others that uh, for, for whom, you know, the, the creative process is first and foremost, and it's somebody else's problem to figure out how to maintain it. And if I can get on a soapbox for a minute, I, I would say that, my frustration with what goes on today in terms of, of, the, of the study of architecture is it's become polarized and that everybody seems to have jumped into some camp or another and has decided this is the right answer or this is the way golf ought to be. And I've never felt that. I've, I've always felt my role is to try to analyze and understand what the architect of a particular project was trying to do within within his framework and within his, uh, you know, what was required or or requested of him by his client. Um, And part of the beauty of of golf design is no two courses are alike. Um, And I understand, you know, that people if they're heavily right brain oriented, they don't like regimented sort of courses. And yet, yeah, I, I I see some what I would call regimented courses that fascinate me. Um, and I guess I guess when I say it, it frustrates me that there is a polarization. Um, I, I just think people would enjoy the study of architecture more if they didn't have agendas, if they just came at it with with the innocent curiosity of of. Of, of all of us when we were young and and before we grew up and felt we knew it all,
0: yeah, that's such a hard ask though because w- considering any art, whether it's you know painting or music or food, you know, people are always going to w- find themselves attached to one strain, one I- one idea train or one tribe or another. And, and golf's no different. But I, what I find interesting is as you're talking about this, this is the same thing you spoke about in 1981, when you published the golf course, you wrote about th- trying to enjoy the diversity of golf courses and, and how every designer, golf courses will always be different, not just because of the landscape, but because the architects are men who are women who have a different idea of how golf courses should be built. You wrote that, you know, way back at that first edition. That's right. Uh, and I was just going to ask you about this and you just talked about it a a, a little bit but let's explore that do you, okay. you feel that do you feel that that we have entered this stage where and not everybody but kind of there's this this group this core of of people who love architecture and who study it and follow it and are excited about new developments it almost seems to me just like you're saying we're, we're we've lost you I think what you're saying is there there're different factions which you don't understand but it almost seems from my perspective that there's almost a settling consensus at least amongst the know-it-alls and i'm probably contribute to this in my own way that there is a sort of a correct or a or a we've reached a conclusion about what good golf design should be and it's it's illustrated in the courses uh you know the new courses that that have elevated up the rankings you know over the last 15, 20 years. What do you see from your perspective? Do we need to fight against that tendency to say, like, you know, why we need width, we need to to emphasize the ground game, we need to look at angles and wind and green contours, and this is the These things that harken back to the golden age, these are the the points of emphasis that we lost in the 80s and 90s, and now we're back to where we should be, and this is the way it's going to be from now on out. I mean, do you think that design ideas have coalesced around a certain set of accepted principles? And if so, should we resist that? I mean, because I was going to say that it almost seems like there's more consensus now about what good golf design is than there has been in the last 30 or 40 years.
1: Well, I, I, I personally need to resist that because I don't agree with that. Uh, but I'm, you know, and I, and I tell people who are interested in architecture, if you'd keep an open mind, I think you would find the study more fascinating and more interesting. But I understand, you know, architects is like politics today. It's very polarized. And, and as you said, it's almost tribal where where you have a, a, you know, there are factions who are fanatic about a certain architect. Um, and uh, my again, my personal feeling is, is variety is what makes sets the game of golf apart from any other sport. The variety of golf courses and the variety within golf courses. And to the extent that anybody says absolutes, like, oh, for example, there are you know trees have no place on a golf course. That's an absolute that I just shake my head at because um, it, it, it it you know if 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 you're building a uh, on, on lynx land certainly although there are lynx lands uh, lynx courses in scotland that have cops of trees here and there um but if if you're in the pacific northwest and somebody says you know an architect says well tree there a tree should have no place on the golf course you're 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 not giving uh due attention to the area where you're working um i i think the best golf course Personally, I think the best golf courses are those that give you a sense of where you're at, and uh, that's why I love Sand Hills in Nebraska because I grew up in Nebraska and I grew up, you know, uh, visiting the Sand Hills, and I always envisioned golf courses out there. Uh, I wrote about that in in 1981, also
0: in the in the book The Golf Course. Yeah, there's a picture and, of uh, uh, Sand Hills, <laughs> Nebraska Sand Hills there.
1: Yeah, Uh, and, and when I the first time I met Ben Crenshaw, he pointed that picture and he said, "Where is this?" Um to me if 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 a if a golf course gives you a sense of where you're at, then the architect is is serving nature he's doing doing what uh, what I think architects try to do best and that is work with nature or imitate nature or or be compatible with nature and yet you know when I see all the the wonderful Mcdonald and Raynor courses which are you know, clearly man-made and, and have to, in my way of thinking, the look of, of old military fortresses and the old military, um, rifle pits and, and all this stuff. Um, I understand that too. I mean, they they, they were, they were, they, they weren't, they were superimposing upon nature. And that was, that was their philosophy. That was their style. I accept that uh, to the extent that some architects today do that more power to them. Uh, I, I just, I keep searching for the next creative burst. There haven't been, there's been a lot of, of imitation or adaptation or reinvention. You know, Pete died said years and years ago, there ain't no, ain't nothing original in golf architecture. Everything's a copy of something although Pete himself sort of established over the years, several different styles or, or, you know, startling different styles. Uh, Jim Ng, I think has created a, a very recognizable distinctive style. I call it art deco because it's a lot of repeating, Mm -hmm. repeating a repetition of of things that, that is very soothing to a, to people and a lot of people like that because of that and, and you know they don't they don't consciously recognize that they just they just um but you know jim is is he gets he gets his uh, he he gets criticized from time to time and um uh, you know i'd hate to to think that nobody would hire jim ing because because his his style is suddenly out of vogue. It, to me, there shouldn't be uh, one style in vogue. It should have, it, we should we should embrace the fact that there are different architects willing to try different things on different pieces of property. There are certainly horses for courses. Um, Dick YoungsCap, I was a guy that convinced Dick, Dick YoungsCap to go out and build a Sandhills golf course. And he had hired Pete Dye in the early eighties to do firethorn in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that's where I met Dick. And, uh, we looked at piece property in late late, i I'm sorry, late 1989, uh, right off the Platte river. It's now called, uh, Corey Oaks. Um, but he was, he was thinking about getting pete back there to do that and i told him well geez if you know, if you're interested in building another course i'd do something out in the sand hills and he told me i was crazy but then he went out there and he called me and says i gotta get pete out there and i said no 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 pete you give pete a, a dead flat piece of ground he'll create something for you but if you give him a great piece of topography, <laughs> you know he's he's still gonna do his thing on it and uh, you want somebody that would work with with the landforms there and so that's how Bill Korn, Ben Crenshaw got involved and, and and no disrespect to Pete. I just think Pete has a certain, uh, a, a certain palette of, 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 architecture that's different than others. And on the right sites, uh, you know, Pete's a, Pete's a genius. And, and, uh, and the same with Tom Fazio, you know, Tom, uh, Tom has had, had the luxury of which a lot of people are very jealous. Of having very very rich clients who were willing to grant him the sort of budgets that will allow him to create, as he says, create new environments, to build mountains where mount, where where no mountains existed and and to uh, you know to to transform we there isn't an architect out there alive that wouldn't love to just say, "I ah, give me a flat canvas and uh, a flat piece of land." and unlimited budget and let me go at it uh we were talking about that jim jim nagel was talking about that the other day in in a group discussion to members at lancaster Country club talking about wayne flynn doing indian creek down at miami beach Mm -hmm. that was a a landfill island and he was given a blank canvas do whatever you want that was the only time that he ever got to to do whatever he wanted Uh, that's the same with Lido, and and uh McDonald and Rainer, you know, when when you're when you're starting from scratch and you're filling in, that's that's why I've I've always been fascinated with the links at Spanish Bay because that was something that a triumvirate of, of architects were able to take a flat piece of land and direct where sand should be deposited, deposited, and 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 create their own landscape. I've I've always suggested I'd love to be involved in a project where you just took. Guys learning to run bulldozers and took them out in the field and started start putting, pushing around stuff and then just tell them to stop yeah. and use whatever landforms they created.
0: I've thought about that, too. In fact, Tom yeah.
1: Tom Layman did a course called Victory at Verado out in um, Buckeye, Arizona, west of Phoenix. That was an old bulldozer practice field. It was where they trained bulldozer operators pushing pushing huge boulders and rocks around. And he used a lot of that um, to fashion some of the holes, and it, you know that, that, that's to me the essence of what architecture is about is 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 finding a different piece of property and and doing something unique that fits that those landforms, and, um, and and there are no two architects that would address it the same, um, and that's the fascination for me and that's what what i've tried to over the last 40 years emphasize to to my readers and to you know trying to, to anybody interested in architecture is that uh, it's it, you know there are a myriad ways to to design and build golf holes and and we should embrace that fact that didn't mean we have to like them all that didn't mean we have to love them all But, you know, it's worth seeking out and playing different courses and and studying those those, uh, architecture, just the way, you know, we should read different novels or listen to different Artist,
0: yeah. Well, you just mentioned that Pete said one time that there's nothing new in golf course architecture, and you know you could even trace his shaping back to Bill Langford and and Donald Ross. You know that gets com- he gets that comparison a lot, and then he sprinkled in some Scottish elements. So it was a more you know his ideas plus combining things that had existed and he'd seen before, and so that, that's that's really the that's really the chestnut out there is what what's next, what is new? Do you think there are new ideas under the sun? You mentioned Jim Eng who. I agree. I, I'm a big fan of Jim Ang. I love playing his playing his golf courses, but he does catch a lot of criticism for kind of pushing his design style out in a, in a direction that's outside the boundaries. Sometimes when people, when architects or artists try to experiment or try to advance the art, it, it doesn't work. Is there, do you think, have you, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Is, is there an a door that hasn't been opened yet?
1: Thought about that. And, and, um, uh, I'm not intelligent to, enough to to quite determine what door hasn't been opened. Uh, I I have a gut feeling that we that there's got to be something out there that we haven't seen yet. But I you know I can't I can't really take put my finger on it. Uh, I I can tell you that um, you know a few years back. You know, on a, on a bid, we did a with um, a bid, Jeff Rar and I bid on a course, which we didn't get the design, and we made this whole presentation on what we called a concept course, and we had all these different sort of 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 you might say wacky ideas just to kind of separate our, ourselves and and uh, and we brainstormed a lot about. What hasn't been? What have we seen in the past that hasn't been done regularly and that sort of thing? I can tell you on on this trip here in Philadelphia, uh, um, I've seen a number of cross bunkers, and cross bunkers are a lost art. I think that's one of these things that that um, uh, goes with you know this philosophy of oh we've got to make this game you know playable for everyone and somehow. Cross bunkers, you know, are considered a forced hat carry, and so you don't do forced carries. There are enough forced carries that that are dictated to us by regulations. Don't do cross bunker forced carries. And I spoke the other day with Jim Nagel at Lancaster Country Club, and I talked about how you know the ground grain is great, but but the, the ball is play uh, the game is played through the air. Manufacturers are building clubs to get the ball airborne. Instructors you know, trying to get the ball airborne. People want to hit the ball in the air as far as they can. And there's nothing wrong with asking us average golfers once or twice in a round to hit the ball in the air over a hazard, the playability aspect where certain architects say, you know, I want, i want a golf course where grandma can play the course with a putter. Um, I, I personally disagree with, I think, I think that's, that turns it into a one dimensional game. And, um, I'd love to, and then I'm working on a course right now and I'm, we've got a couple of cross bunkers in there and we'll see if, if the client agrees to it. But I, I still think that's an aspect. It's not a, it's not a new door, but it's a door that's been, it's, it's an old closet that's been kind of uh, locked for a long time. I, I can't think of too many cross bunkers. In in modern day, is it sort um, of like the the I'm old
0: steeplechase cross bunker, like the, something that's draped across the entire fairway?
1: Yeah, right. Where the yeah. where the fairway ends, where it's a hell's half acre. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's not it's not a hell's ha- it's not a half acre. It's just a uh, either a string of bunkers or a cluster of bunkers or one large, artfully shaped bunker, uh, whatever. But the whole idea is. The golfer has to hit the ball in the air to uh, to reach the target, mm-hmm. and there's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we've we we sometimes lose sight of those kind of things. Another thing uh, we have kicked around Bob Cup and I back in that book uh, Golf's Grand Design, and this was another of those concept things that Jeff Barr and I talked about was was getting back to to half par holes and and not. Uh, you know, a three and a half or a four and a half, because I think there are a lot of times today where, you know, when you talk about a drivable par four, it's not drivable for me. I'm not going to ever drive it, but but it's kind of fun to think of it as a as a half par hole. It's it's the kind of hole where if I really caught it, I might almost get to the green. And but the, you know, half pars were really go back to bogey on a card where you're playing Colonel Bogey in the half half par was was the score of Colonel Bogey so you're either going to win or lose the hole to him on that hole and we sold the idea that if you had half par holes then you know you you have to play the course twice to determine whether you could par the hole um, if you scored seven on a three and a half for two rounds then you played it in par if you scored six on, on the combined two rounds then you're under par and if you scored eight you're over par and curiously enough, John Morissette, unbeknownst to me, uh, adapted that at Aaron Hills for their little kettle loop. It's a, a, a five-hole loop for playing late in the day where you go out one, two, three, cut across, play five as a par three and, and six. And um, uh, he used two half-pars just for that sort of reason, to, to, to I, I guess, point out that it encourages uh, a match play, or, or if you're scoring by yourself, to play the, the card, and encourage people to play it again to see whether or not uh, they can play that hole in par. Um, you know, Bill and Ben have done courses where it had no par, and uh, nothing wrong with that idea either. It's it's. You know, it's either a one or a two or three-shot hole, or and that's that's the whole idea of the, the half bars. Is is that a two or a three-shot hole? as a four and a half. Yeah, I mean those a, are the kind of things sure. you, you know you 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 play around with. But as far as you know, radical ideas of architecture, you know, everyone keeps talking about. Artificial turf, a full golf course of artificial turf. I just had a, an architect contacted me who's who's trying to do one in California. There was one try, you know, that they talked about doing in Colorado years ago that never came about. I I I don't ever see that being a wave of the future, but I could see that um, you know being built in certain climates in certain areas.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. A lot of the people that I talk to, the architects mostly and shapers, there seems to be a lot of—I don't want to say consensus, but but a, a lot of sympathy or a lot of interest in seeing the design profession kind of move in a new direction. And nobody's really sure what that direction is, but I'm, I'm sure people have a lot of ideas on their own, and you know, and, and sort of a reaction, I think, against the the dominance so to speak of of Tom and and Bill and and Gill and, and and maybe David Kidd as well and i don't know if it's professional envy that they get these great sites and there's just sort of a desire to try to like grab something and go in a, in a new direction but there does seem to be it's we seem to be at a moment from my perspective that there is a desire to see what's next to see this as a a launching point for the next phase or wherever this uh, natural minimalist movement is is going to go. Do you sense that rumbling out there? It har- it's hard because there are no, there are very few opportunities for anybody to do that. And the good sites that come along do seem to go to the same core group of designers.
1: Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Uh, you know, um, uh, I'll, I'll use Rob Collins for an example, who who transformed that little nine hole course into Sweeten's Cove. He and and his partner, yeah, Tad, Yeah, we talked to him here? And did' a, and and did a marvelous job and 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 you know I played it and um I loved it. it's just so much fun to play uh, and then I played it again with with a a bunch of fellow old fart high handicappers, and they hated it, and I came away understanding why they did and and I didn't lecture them that you know, oh my god, you you don't know what you' what you're missing when, if you refuse to play this. I just, I just, I realize, you know, Rob did a course that in many ways pushed the envelope, um, and, and especially for a nine-hole course, and uh, uh, you know, there there are edges to that course that um, that if you miss, you 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 can be brutally penalized, and there are edges of that course that if you hit it you're rewarded with an Eagle putt. And, uh, you know, that to some people is great fun. And to other people, especially left brain people who expect, uh, a, a predictable result for a predictable shot. Uh, they don't like that. And, and, and you know, my feeling is that's fine. You know, there, there's going to be plenty of people that are going to love Sweeten's Cove. The, the, it's not going to be universally loved, and and so when Tony Piappi came out with his book, and I think it's number two in the in the, yeah, in the world, is, he listed yeah. it. Um, yeah, and 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 yet uh, I, I've got several Golf Digest panelists who have talked to me about it, and they don't they don't consider it, you know one of the top courses, and that and, and and that's why it's because they they're looking at it from um, a different viewpoint and uh, and that's to me that's the essence of what I've been trying to do over the years is simply get a healthy discussion on architecture and and an appreciation for different styles of architecture and again I keep saying you don't have to love it all it's just that right now it seems like uh, you can't you can't like Tom Doak without hating Tom Fazio and I said "Why why can't you enjoy both their courses? Um, but there, it's it's polarized, and and I've never understood that. Um, as far as what you're talking about in terms of the younger generation, yeah, there is a certain amount of envy there, and there's you know it it's it it has to do with there are so few deep pockets to build courses these days, and when they have their pet architects, their favorite architects, and they keep returning to them, um, David. You know, Mike Kaiser has has you know picked Corn Cruncher or Doak or David Kidd for almost everything he's done, and uh, so it's it, it frustrates uh, both a lot of veteran architects who always said, "Geez, how can I get a crack at that nut?" and uh, as as well as young and up and comers. Um, and but I respect Mike. I mean, it's his money, and. One thing you know about Mike Kaiser is he's dealing with what he calls a retail a retail golfer, and he's got stuff that works. Why is he going to change? You know, that's the commercial aspect of it that 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 uh, we always have to bear in mind.
0: Let me ask you this: uh, you know the uh, golf architecture and industry world is, as well as anybody alive. In your opinion let me see, let me tell you my opinion really quick first obviously mike kaiser and what he's done to enable th- these amazing everlasting golf courses to come into existence and be able to tap into the greatest minds of this generation has been admirable and it's obviously goes without saying that that to the play of these golf courses is almost an existential treat they're they're above and beyond but to continue to build courses in faraway places that require a lot of money and a lot of time to get to, and then you spend a lot of money and a lot of time to play there. Is is that helping the game at all? Is it just, or is it just a, is it just for wealthy people?
1: Oh, listen, so much of society is, is, (laughs) is out of sync right now. Um, We are, we are heavily driven by commercial aspects in every aspect of life and golf isn't any different. You know do I wish that that uh, Mike Kaiser would do inner city projects? Yeah, because uh, he loves golf and he's willing to spend the money on it and that would grow the game but but he's a businessman and he realizes you know there's a certain commercial, Role model, or you know, a, a model that he's got to follow to to uh, to make a profit. I I ran a I owned and operated co-owned and operated a eighteen hole public free course in Kansas for three years. We charged seventeen dollar green fees, and let me tell you, that's a hard business, a very hard business. And um, and I say that because everybody has a every golfer has a Walmart mentality. They want quality, but they want a Walmart price, and they come up and they say, $17, When do you? When, what, what's your Twilight fee? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it, 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 is, um, it is tough in this day and age. When I was growing up, the dollar a day green fees was for, of course, they had dirt tees. Uh, you're not going to get away with providing dirt tees in this day and age cities don't want to have anything to do with running golf courses. They don't, they don't even own a golf course anymore. And that was, that was, that was for 60, 70, 80 years. I don't know. That was the starting point for a lot of, of golfers getting into the, into the game was playing you know, public golf, municipal golf courses. Uh, that's going away. And, and, um, and the country club model is going away. So that the, the country club kid who got to play all days is, is, is slowly, or maybe not so slowly changing. I, I, I'm I not smart enough to know how to grow the game, except that, you know, the old line is all politics is local, and I think uh, all golf architecture is local, and, and, and if you're going to grow the game, you do it locally. And so, you know, I'm trying to interest my grandkids in it, and I take them out to play golf. And to the extent that one out of four boys shows an interest to it, I figure that's a pretty good percentage, you know, you know help him along and do what I can to, to encourage that. Um, the, you know, the, the long-term prognosis to me is if we don't make this game cheaper, it's going to become an elitist game again, if it hasn't already. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and dev- design has something to do with that because, uh, again, uh, I can tell you from owning and operating a golf course, the more hand maintenance there is, the hard, more expensive it is to maintain, the harder it is to keep green fees down. And so there has to be a certain uh, movement towards building courses with fewer bunkers and and, and greens that can be triplex mode again, to hand mow and everything, and, and getting back to, to uh, building courses that were efficient Um you know, when they call it, talk about sustainability, if of course isn't economically sustainable, I don't care if it's environmentally sustainable. It ain't going to last. And to be a, a, you know, i don't I don't know what an optimum green fee is these days, but to me, twenty thirty dollars is sort of still a breaking point, but maybe that's even unrealistic. but but uh, I, I still know of people, friends of mine who are not in the golf business, but who are golfers, who get outraged if they say fifty dollars? I'm never going to pay fifty dollars. Well, wow, you, you you know it's it's hard to find in a lot of markets anything less than hundred bucks. And uh, I keep I keep joking, I'm not going to leave Golf Digest because I couldn't afford to pay green fees.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, well, I mean, we have so many great examples of how to build luxury golf. You know, how to build dream golf. We have very, so few examples of how to build an economically sustainable, affordable, tight, compact walking golf course. That's also interesting, and you know it just seems like you know you, you've been ta- just talking about this, but it seems like you know the scale is tilted tilted in the wrong direction. I keep hoping that that's that's the next wave. When we talk about new ideas in design, I I, I hope it's conjoined with the idea that we're going to take maybe existing properties in urban areas and punch them up a little bit and create something that's more affordable, sustainable, walkable and less time consuming. Because there's you know, as we know there are hundreds, if not thousands, of opportunities to do that. If we just lack the financing, right? <laughs>
1: right. Here, here. I and I've I I've I i i could not agree with you more. I mean Mike Mike Hurdson and I first pitched our Aaron Hills idea to Bob Lang back in the early two thousands by saying, we want to build the best $50 green fee course in America. Uh, and now it costs 200 bucks to mm-hmm. play. Yeah. But the, the problem is nobody wants to work the low end of the business. And I, by, by that, I mean, no golf course proprietor, you don't make money at $17 green fee courses. Uh, you just don't. And, and it, it you know, you, you it's, it, you don't even make money on green fees anymore. You know you make it on food service and a lot of other things, cart, cart sales and all that stuff. But it's, it, it's, that's where I wish we could somehow get city governments back in the business of public golf, of pro- providing that as a service like they do city zoos and city parks and municipal auditoriums and all that sort of stuff. Um, but they don't see it that way because it's a big-ticket item. And even though you'd say, well, I can, you know, I could transform this course into something that would be efficient to maintain, and it would be quick to play, and and it would handle, uh, you know, uh, handle sixty thousand rounds a year, uh, and you could do it, you know, with by offering a a discounted fee to citizens of the, you know, of your community who vote for you, Uh, they don't want any part of it, and that's unless there is a benefactor out there and it's going to have to be a corporation that gets in the business of, of trying to do entry level golf. And that's what I call it. Entry level golf. Uh, it ain't going to happen. Um, you know, I, 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 I have a lot of respect for Tom Watson, who, who's, you know, the the third franchise in Kansas city. And, uh, and when he did a first tee project, Oh gosh, this has to be 15 years ago up in Swope park. And I went out. There is a three-hole course with Zoiza fairways, and I'm going. Why would you have Zoiza fairways? I mean, we're training these little kids to play on these Zoyza fairways, and then they're going to go. They're going to graduate up to the city park courses that have burned-out bluegrass fairways, and they're going. Go, Where's my Zoiza fairways? You know, uh, again, these third, these first tee programs ought to have dirt tees. For gosh sakes, they ought to be bare bones. Yeah. You know, it ought to be a sandlot to learn the game, and and then you aspire to 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 go something higher. And um, it seems like every project that's touted as growing the game that I see, like the Cradle, and I mean, no no disrespect to Pinhurst at all, but that that doesn't seem to me to be an entry level family. Course Johnny Miller, Johnny Morris did uh, uh, this mountaintop course that uh, that Jeff Lawrence did for Gary Player mm-hmm. a wonderful design uh, you know it's, it sits on a ledge and all this stuff but it's got a, it, it, it they call it a family course and it's got these fifty yard bunker shots green after green after green mm-hmm. and I'm going my family couldn't couldn't handle that <laughs> um I, I, you know they're they're just there is a fine line between trying to serve the global idea of growing the game and serving a client who wants a certain amount of panache and as an architect you want to do you want to make a statement because you don't get very often anymore a chance to make a statement so you err on the side of of spectacular and at the expense of, of uh Playability and uh, green fees. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what the answer yeah, is.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, and it, you're pointing out something like sort of the paradox is when these chances do come up to build something that's for the community or with the idea of being accessible to, to children and families and beginners, oftentimes it's not done in a correct or sustainable way. You might be familiar with the, the Bobby Jones renovation here in Atlanta, where I live, and Bob cup designed it before he passed away. And it's a great idea, but again, it, it may not, it may backfire. It might be too complicated. It's nine holes, reversible. And then it has a short yeah. course and everything else. But if they don't get the, like you pointed out a minute ago, if they don't get the grass, right. And they don't get the drainage, right. Or if you know, the scale of the holes, right. It it, it could have a negative effect on you know, what, what is a noble idea.
1: Yeah. Uh, I have not, I, I mean, obviously I spoke with Bob a lot about it. In fact, he and I were working on a reversible course for the, for the Biltmore up in Asheville that never got built. But, uh, uh, you know, the concept is great. Um, uh, i I always felt it was, it was a better concept for a lightly played place like the Biltmore hotel than a municipal golf course where you're trying to run through a lot of golfers every day. Mm-hmm. And, um, but but uh, you know I'm I'm certainly hopeful that it succeeds and it succeeds in the in in the sort of way that would encourage other communities to to build a nine hole reversible if that's all the land they have. Yeah, we hope it I succeeds. I mean Bob had a lot of reasons why he, why he wanted to do that. Part of it was was to spread out wear and tear and and get away from the from the flood prone areas and all that stuff. But I haven't been out there to see the construction. To know just what's going on yet. I'm, I'm hopefully get down to Atlanta here uh, sometime in the next few months.
0: Yeah, I mean we're all hoping it succeeds because if it does, it will be one of the few examples of something like that that can for the community made for kids that can work. Um, let's. I want to switch yeah. gears real quick. You know, you got in. You, you talked about your past and how you developed a fondness for golf course architecture, and you began. A legal career but you wanted to have golf be your kind of your side project your side passion and obviously you've become wildly successful at that more than successful you've been in my mind probably one of the most influential voices in golf design and and golf architecture of the last 50 years do you ever consider the impact that your career has had whether it's from writing books to being the editor of golf digest explaining golf to people being in charge of the rankings, are you at a point in your life when you can reflect back on how influential and important you've been to the design world?
1: Yes, I've been non-influential and unimportant. I, uh, False. I, I I I I tell I tell people that you know all my life I've tried to to just sort of engage people and try to develop their interest in golf design the same way I had. And I tried to do it with my writing and talks and, and even with the architecture. When Stephen Kay and I did the Architects Golf Club, it was it was trying to to represent the evolution of a certain, you know, of, of early American golf architecture. There had been a series of Surveys of Golf Digest on what people read in the magazine, and I was always Mister Two Percent because two percent of the people would say they read Golf Digest primarily for its architecture, <laughs> and that invariably didn't change over a fifteen-year period. I've always been Mister Two Percent, and I've always, and it, it, it finally dawned on me that you know architecture is a is a niche niche subject. It it, it attracts a small but very Vocal and very affluent audience, and to the extent that I've tried to expand that to the average golfer, I've failed miserably. Um, And I can tell you that uh, without—I mean, I—I
0: don't know. Brad Brad Klein estimates it's like at five percent. So maybe you maybe you added those three extra points.
1: (laughs) No, Brad may reach five (laughs) percent. I don't think I do. Um, and he's on TV now, so he'll probably use
0: 10%. Was he on Charlie Rose? But, uh,
1: you know, I, I, I could, I could wring my hands and say, uh, you know, I'm a terrible failure. Um, or I, uh, you know, I could just say that, you know, I have thoroughly enjoyed my choice of careers and to the extent that, uh, that, that I've been able to inspire other people into, into, taking a different sort of look at architecture. Uh, I'm proud of that. I never did set out to try and transform the world. And I, I, I do get genuinely uh, embarrassed if somebody says, Oh, you, you know, you're one of the most important voices in golf architecture.
0: You know, that's just because you're modest. I was,
1: I was writing for a major, the major golf magazine. And, 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 you know, when, when I, when I, if I, if I asked, you or anybody well how did i do that and we say oh those rankings, you know they re- you know those don't represent my views i counted the ballots but you know I, I i've sometimes cringed at the results of of those simply because they didn't match what i personally thought were were you know some of the top courses that i'd seen in america but um to the extent that the books have have revealed the different personalities and 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 the different approaches to golf architecture. Yeah, I'm I'm proud of that, and if it had an impact, I'm pleasantly surprised.
0: Well, take us back to when you began researching the golf course. F- first of all, it seems like an an undertaking that I can't even relate to. I don't even know how how you did that and how you accumulated that amount of information. But t- what what was the understanding? My impression is the understanding of architects, historical architects at that time, the guys, you know, pre-Depression, pre-World War II especially, was very low. Even people who liked golf courses and thought about them didn't, you know, they probably knew Donald Ross, but they probably didn't know too many other people. So what was that environment like when you began your research for the golf course? And then I'll just, I'll, you know, jump, jump in and say, without that book I mean you could make an argument that you jump-started the historical movement and the understanding of all the great work that had been done and and largely kind of forgotten.
1: Well Frank Hannigan actually kind of started that but in 74 uh, they had three USJ events and Tillinghast courses Wingfoot and uh, uh, gosh I forget the other two Ridgewood was one of them where Jerry Pate won the US Amateur that year. But he did an article in the USGA, you know, kind of reintroducing AW Tillinghast because he'd been so forgotten. He died in '42, and, and you know, nobody nobody knew anything about Tillinghast. They, they didn't even have his name. right. They called him Albert when he, or, I'm sorry, Archie Tillinghast when it was Albert. <laughs> um, and and he, again, he had heard about that I had been researching, so he contacted me, and I sent him what I had, and and he, you know, very graciously gave me a credit in the. In the, in, in the article saying this was done with the assistance of all these people. And that was sort of, you know, my first exposure, you know, national exposure to, and I think that's part of what got Jeff Cornish interested too, but uh, that's what I wanted to do for everybody, for every architect. Jeff wanted to do the top 10 architects, and I said, Jeff, nobody else is going to do this. We ought to do everybody. Uh, and I'm still doing it today. Now, when I, when, I, when I did it, in the 70s, I was going through Herb Graff's golf sitting up late at night, early in the morning, doing my laundry reading through these things. Of, of Joe Hadwick, the superintendent of country called Lincoln, had a complete set going back to the 20s. And uh, I'd borrow them from him and, and, and go through those. And I'd go through news, or, 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 sorry, microfilm of newspapers. And it, it's so much easier today with, with search engines and everything. But back then... Uh, you know, I, I burned a lot of midnight oil just just trying to track down little bits and pieces. I contacted relatives of architects, and and uh, you know, I met Tom Langford, Bill's son, in in North Chicago, and he gave me seventy five blueprints. He said, "You can have them, but they're down in the cellar." And it was this dank cellar that had collapsed, and we had to carry them out and dust them off and everything. Wow. Um, so I just, you know, I I, I I was doing the old fashioned footwork and it, and it's, it's, uh, um, it always frustrated me that those books came out when I wasn't really, um, uh, uh, satisfied with, with the documentation or the thoroughness of the research. And, and the people are asking me, you know, when are you going to produce another edition? And, uh, I've got another edition I've been working on for damn near 30 years it's it's far more expansive than anything before, um, but I haven't finished my research. I keep you know I keep coming up with with new discoveries, so I've decided you know what I need to do is just turn it into a website, and and that way I can let the public access it, and I uh, I can continue to supplement and update it, which you can't do in a printed publication. Mm-hmm. Not that a publisher has been interested in my book for 20 years, but. And I just haven't pulled the trigger on that because I guess I'm lazy. I don't know. I would it, hardly it's, say that. It's, um, it's one of those things that, that uh, um, every once in a while somebody says, you know, when are you going to do that? And I think, you know, I to I just get her done. And it's just, uh, it, it's it's high time to do it. I'm at an age where, where um, you know, it... it I don't know how many more years I got yeah, left, right. and so I want to get it done before, I, before I'm gone. So the, the, arc, the and, architects and of golf
0: uh, left off at, at, what, like 95, 96? No, 90, 92. Oh, 92. Okay, there's there's some... 92. Yeah, you're just getting to the good parts. <laughs> there's well, yeah, there's here's, a lot here's, that happens. Here's one,
1: of the, here's, one of the, here's one of the deep, dark secrets when I tell my Bill Core story. Bill never made it in my book. Right. We don't have a profile of Bill Core in that book. Okay, nobody notices that but me. I think, are you sure? I, this, I think I thought, I thought huge, there was a,
0: a small profile. I have to go look. Um, I could have swore there was. I have
1: this huge profile of Bill now in my book, but you know, and and and, and golf club Atlas has said, you know, you go to the game just to turn it over to us and do this, and and what I don't want is it turning out to be the Wikipedia of golf architecture. I, I I still want to control it. I have I have that sense of pride of authorship or pride of research that you know, I, I, Jeff and I over the years, we get all these letters from people saying, you got it wrong. We have a Donald Ross course. We'd have to send them our documentation and ask them what their documentation was and their documentation was usually the grandfather. And uh, um, so, you know, that's one of the things I got to figure out is, is how do I, how do I do this without, you know, letting it become a Wikipedia? Right.
0: What was the hardest part? Was it sourcing information from, you know, the early 1900s, 19-teens, 20s, or was it finding information about renovations that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Because, you know, when I I do writing, I constantly consult the architects of golf, and I want to see, like, who renovated this course. I know something had been done. It's going through a new renovation now, but I know it was worked on in the 50s and 60s. And it seems like that information is... is hard to pin down because maybe somebody came in and just did a little work here, a little work there. It wasn't a complete... Yeah, and we
1: never... Yeah, and we never... We never distinguished... You know, Jeff got a lot of of records from all his fellow ASGCA members, and I contacted all the non asgc members, the Robert Von Heigies of the world and that sort of thing, and they all were very gracious in sending me stuff. Some of it was detailed, some of it was not. Some of it had dates, some of it did not, some of it had the actual work, what holes they worked on. Some of it did not. And again, because I wanted to be so democratic, everybody's included. We didn't discriminate. If, if, if Ken Killian said he worked on 50 courses and he didn't give us any details, we still listed those 50 courses without specifying. Now over the years, I've tried to specify what work was done as where, but you know, we're talking thousands of courses and, and, I, and and um i'm uh, you yeah, i'm doing the best i can but you know i just found this week there's Lancaster and Philadelphia Country Club and and um, and Manny's all the different work that's been done in all the different holes and that's that's because of the documentation that that Jim Nagel and Ron Force have done over the years and are gracious enough to share with me so it's you know that's why i say it's it's one aspect of of why I feel I'm still a student of architecture and the and and uh, and has always given me a little hesitancy to to declare the architects of golf updated version done and complete and ready for publication. But at some point, I've got to pull the trigger
0: Those books alone solidify your place in the uh, Hall of fame of golf course architecture in my opinion. I mean those are invaluable and <laughs> it's just staggering the amount of research that you and Mr. Cornish did.
1: Well, thank you. But my wife would say, don't listen to that. That'll just give you a big head. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's been great to have recorded all that stuff and, and to have been a very little part of the, the creative process, uh, of golf architecture.
0: And also reintroducing you know the the ghosts from the past and bringing them into the contemporary i don't know without that type of reportage and research, I'm not sure we'd have all the the great restoration and the respect for the golden age that we have now. It might have come eventually, but you certainly jump helped jumpstart that
1: yeah i i, I don't I don't deny that jeff Jeff and i uh, that that book did especially amongst the architect community it, it had a big impact um no, no question about that
0: can i can i just this is more of a, an idea or a thought that i have rather than a question but and you may disagree with this i always found with that with with jeff cornish there was a huge paradox there on one hand what we're talking about he's contributing to this wealth of knowledge this uh, helping bring this lost knowledge back into architecture and our contemporary understanding of what happened yet on the other hand he he did a lot of <laughs> renovations through his career of old historic courses that really kind of took them away from their origins. And they're, you know, a lot of them are now being put back as Ron Pritchard once said to me, he said, you know, Jeff was a hell of a nice guy, but he did a lot of damage. Do you, is do you find the paradox in that? Or is it just, is that just the way our knowledge moved from the 50s, 60s and 70s into where we are now?
1: Listen, I find it very ironic. And, um, and I was a little bit aware of it when I was working with Jeff, but I got more aware of it when I started writing for Golf Digest and really got back east and saw uh, some of the work he'd done on these things. And and I, you know, again, I I always put things into context, in, into the context, in the context of that. Everybody, all of Jeff's contemporaries, and especially his partner Bill Robinson, were, were scrambling for jobs, trying to set the, separate themselves. From others, and when they brought in to remodel a course, they were brought in to remodel a course. They weren't brought in to restore a course. Nobody talked about course restoration. Bob Vila was maybe restoring houses, but nobody was restoring courses. And uh, and they they wanted to you know they I know Jeff told me he'd redo a couple of holes and hope that they'd like that, and they redo the they hire him back to do the rest of the course. Uh, and you don't get that if you're plus there, there weren't there weren't archives. I mean, it's astonishing how few clubs, especially major clubs, kept any old records, kept any old blueprints, kept anything. So even if they had told Jeff, "Hey, we want we want our Seth Trainer holes reproduced here," they wouldn't have. It, it, you know, yeah, he could have probably dug and found found those few arrows that everybody's found now. But but um, it was just a different time. But it is very ironic that Jeff, one of the foremost historians. Um, didn't really show much respect for those old architects, but nobody did in those days. Um, to the extent our book changed that, you know, it's probably positive. Brian Silva has given some marvelous talks talking about how Tilling asked when he went around on those tours for the PGA of America, yeah. destroyed golf architecture. And again, you know, I, I, I love Brian. He's a close, dear friend. We, 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 we've we known each other since since the Cornish but um I, I tell him you gotta keep it in context. These are clubs that were desperately trying to hold on. And and if you have this guy come in and say, you know, you could save this much money by filling in those bunkers which only duffers get into, yeah, they look artistic and they fit the thing but, but you know, if the difference is going under or or making it another year, why wouldn't they have filled it there? You know, we're talking about a time, and we we forget just how tough it was in the Depression, and how many great courses didn't survive. Um, I don't fault Tillinghast at all, and uh, uh, to the extent that that we now say that, well, Tillinghast you know betrayed his art, uh, he was struggling himself. You know, he needed the money. Yeah. Um. It. it yeah. So. Again, it's one of those things where if you if you we're all quick quick to criticize, and what what I urge is just to put things in perspective and 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 try to to uh, to keep uh, keep that in mind.
0: Did you get along with Robert Trent Jones?
1: I had a great time with Trent Jones. He hired me to write a book. I went down there and met him at Tulsa. He was doing a course called Celebrity, which never got built. We sat in the in a conference room at a hotel, and I had a tape recorder going for two hours. And he was—he had—he had an incredible memory. He was telling me, you know, if you look up in Rochester this date, you'll find an article on me and this and boom, boom, boom. And I'm writing all this stuff down. And he got up to go to the bathroom, and I sat there for an hour. And <laughs> I finally went out looking for him, and I was told, i went to the front desk. He's Mr. Jones checked out. <laughs> he just wandered off and figured we were done. And, and you know, the two hours was supposed to turn into a book. Well, uh, it didn't even turn into an article. Um, you know, it was, he was mercurial, I guess is the word to use. He was, uh, the stories are that he would show up at an airport and if his plane was canceled, he said, what's the next plane out? He'd buy a ticket for that and he'd fly there. Um, he was, he was the best self promoter. Of all time in terms of golf architecture, as far as I'm concerned, and he had a lot of competition. I am mean, telling ass writing, promoting himself, Donald Ross selling himself, uh, and and but I think Trent elevated it to a kind of a celebrity status, even with the brand name. Give your course a signature.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that your career began, right? Your career, your career with Golf Digest and, and and golf research and writing began at this place that's kind of in a dark place, a lot of people use the word, you know, kind of a dark place in the, in the 70s and in and, and, and the 80s. That's the kind of the tail end of the Trent Jones era. And a lot of the real estate development is on the rise and really kind of taking over. And you've gone, you've kind of like transitioned from that era and knowing being able to sit down with, with Trent Jones, meeting all these other architects and then getting into this completely new sp- space that we're in now where you know everything's grand, you have these amazing. It's like the golden age of golf sites. A completely different ethos in architecture. How do you re- how do you reflect that? What does that make you feel like when you reflect on that?
1: Well, I, I've told people I wasn't lucky enough to live in the golden age or meet you know Ross or Tillinghast or Mackenzie. But by gosh, I got I got to know Pete Dye from an early age. I got to know you know I met Tom Doak when he was twenty three. I've already told you about Bill Corr you know, I, I've, I've followed the careers and an awful lot of these guys. Plus I've been the transition guy to meet the older ones. Uh, um, um, you know, I wrote the book with Joe Lee and, 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 um, spent time with Trent Jones and Robert, Robert Bruce Harris. Uh, I met him in Chicago before his death. You know, I could, I'll think of others there. There, there, was a, the whole generation of old, Perry, uh, Perry Maxwell's son, press Maxwell. Yeah he and I went up uh, played the uh, prairie dunes together and he had all these stories that told, he flew in in his own Cherokee or his own. Yeah. His own Cherokee. And then flew out after, after a round. Just a,
0: a quick um, stop, a quick, quick flight up the prairie dunes for a round of golf and back.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I've been very fortunate in my career to have one, had the confidence, the golf digest to allow me to do it for this long, you know, 30 some years now. And, um, And to have had all these different architects uh, be willing to uh, spend time with me. Um, I always say I I, I think I hold the world record of playing courses with their architect. I'm over 300 now. I don't know how many Brad is, but I only count an architect once on a course they design. So um, that's been a great education. Yeah.
0: Ron, we'll start we'll start uh, wrapping this up here. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is is unlike so much of the world around us right now that gets so excited and exasperated at the same time you, you rarely seem that you're either like too high on whatever the trend is and or too low you're you know like and you've said we've spent some time talking about how you appreciate the diversity of, of design and architecture and, and embrace it but when you look back on kind of like that 1980s 90s era of golf are you able to em- embrace that era now at like you might have done in it contemporaneously when I look at it as, you know we really got off the track there and introduced a lot of bad habits and really got far away from the essence of, of playing golf with the, you know we got into a lot of bad habits and a lot about economic models do you do you share that and do you have any regrets that as somebody who w- was one of the prominent voices maybe didn't do as much as you could have to illuminate the missteps that we were taking
1: Yes, <laughs> it's, just, it's as simple as that yeah, I have regrets about that. Um, uh, but again, at the time i was uh, I was trying to promote architecture and and in the in the context of a system I'd created, you know our panelists were choosing those courses as to be you know the top courses being built and and it became an arms race. It became you know special effects and and lots of money spent and and you know there were accusations of lots of money spent on promotion, which wasn't really true. But but you know the, the, if you think back and look at some of those courses, they were the splashy deals. Now that still happens today. I mean, everybody rushes to play Stream Song, or everybody rushes to play Sand Valley, or whatever. So it, it, it's it's just that those seem to be more in vogue. I, I you know I, I, so I I hold my tongue because I don't know. In twenty-five years from now, what people will think of Dream Song? You know, I've I've been on record as, as saying that, you know, it's, it's it's a nice product, but I can remember World Woods being at you know, the next great Florida destination, and I've been so little by saying it, but no World Wood, World's Woods isn't on anybody's tongue these days. Um, so, I, I've I've learned to temper uh, my enthusiasm and my criticism. Mm-hmm.
0: Well it's at, from a putting on your historian hat take a shot what do you think the reflection will be from a historical perspective in 50 years on this on these last 15 or 20 years kind of the the doke and core era do you think it'll do you think it'll be afforded the same scrutiny and the same scholarship and the same reverence that the 1920s were
1: uh yeah i would hope so yeah i would hope so because you know, I, I mean, a lot of people are doing good work. I, I, I think, I think, you know, people will be studying Tom Doke stuff, and I, I hope people will be studying Jim Meng stuff, and I hope people will be studying Bill Kors stuff and Jeff Brower's stuff, and uh, you know, there, there's, and and, you know, that the stuff that Ron Pritchard and Ron Force are restoring are are well preserved, so they can be studied. To me, it it's incumbent upon Clubs to to stay healthy, so these golf courses stay healthy, and it's incumbent upon somebody that to continually um, promote these things for for the correct reasons, and that's for the love of architecture and, and not just for a, a a commercial reason. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah. One of the one thing I always notice is. Compared to the 1920s, and we have all this. We have this great depth of writing from that era. You know, the, the those they got, those guys were great writers. The architects were the people who even were tangentially connected to architecture produced volumes of great works that we can study. We don't really have that same, outside of Tom Doke, you know, and, and no. a few other people. But the architects are not uh, as as verbal as they were at that point. So I wonder how that's going to And they never will be
1: again. They never will be again, Derek, because everybody's doing podcasts. Nobody writes. <laughs> so uh, well,
0: we've got to put these in a vault then. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. A, a couple of quick questions on the way out. Do you, would you consider yourself more a, a historian, a critic, or a writer?
1: I'm not a critic. I'm, I'm a golf writer and, and, and a historian.
0: Who are your Who are your writing influences, either in golf or outside of golf? What do you like to read?
1: Non-golf. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've read Carl Sandburg, and I've read Michael Conley, and I've read Aldous Huxley, and I've uh, I, I just got onto John Le Carre now, and 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 I'm fascinated by his writing, mm-hmm. and it, um, I, I I firmly believe, you know, uh, Stephen King. Uh, you know, he said years ago, you want to be a good writer? You better be a good reader. And, and, and so I try to read a lot. I've, I'd like to think that I've the one thing at one skill I have greatly improved upon is my, are my writing skills. Since, since I first started, when I first started, I certainly wrote like a lawyer. And now I like to think I write like a magazine writer.
0: Do you, I mean, but, that, you know, it, it do you, t- I'm sorry. Are you ever conscious of of taking things that you've read a certain style or a certain sentence structure and bringing it into your writing or is it does it seep in other ways?
1: Uh, I think it's just I, I think it's sort of a subconscious influence. Yeah. Um, but I I do think there is a certain rhythm I try to keep in my writing. I I literally read aloud everything that I write. Um, mm-hmm. so that I can hear the cadence, so I can hear the the, the flow of it. And if it's too wordy or if it's too, uh, you know, and, and, and sometimes I get, I, I get in these modes where I'm trying to, to be a little too cute. And that, that always comes out when I'm, when I read it aloud, I say, Oh no, that sounds too much like Rick Riley or that sounds too much like Jim Murray. I'm not Jim Murray. I wish I was, but I'm not.
0: There's so, only uh, one. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you've you know, found, and, and, you found your voice.
1: I guess I, you know I, I, I'm I'm still writing for the magazine, so somebody likes reading it.
0: I do. i I love your writing. You have very a very good, uh, clean, clear, precise, yet f- fulsome way to present things. You know, it's it's sort of like the the lack of of uh, obvious trying to make it stylish has its own style. It's very it's very easy to, and and informative. It's something that I aspire no, to that, as a that, writer.
1: That, I would I would attribute that to both my journalism training in undergrad and my legal training in, in law school. And um, if it's clean and concise, and and I, I appreciate that, but
0: full too um, and rich.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um,
0: okay. So you've you've spoken uh, many times. I've, I know a lot about Aaron Hills, which is one of the things aside from your uh, writing and historical work that you'll be best known for. And you've you've spoken about it a lot. How do you how do you like the course right now after it's been altered? Do you does some part of you wish that it was still that same first version that 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 version still existed?
1: Do I wish the architecture was not quite as changed? Yeah, because I thought we were trying to set an example of letting Mother Nature do the best, proving Mother Nature was the best architect, and I thought we had some really neat green sites that have since gone down. The Punch Bowl on Four, I, I like a lot better than what's there now but it was such a dreadful condition in the first few years that that impacted everybody's impression of that golf course. Do I wish we had the old course with today's conditioning? Absolutely.
0: And you can look at that golf course now though, and say, I'm very proud of it. This is like, is that one of the, yeah. One of the highlights of your career to design Um, a U.S. open golf course. I imagine it doesn't get much.
1: uh, Listen, listen, uh, I've got friends who've been in the business of design for 40 years, who give. Uh, yeah. you know they're left. You know what to, to design a course that hosts the U.S. Open. And I stumbled into one. Uh, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and 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 I'm proud that I, I'm proud that it had the reception. It I it doesn't bother me that 16 under one because guess what? Dustin Johnson missed the cut. Jason Day missed the cut. You 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 still had to play golf. Uh, it wasn't a pushover. Uh, it rewarded great shots, and I keep saying this, the reason why 16 under one and the reason why there are so many scores under, uh, Zach Reineking had those bent grass greens as pure as anything you've ever seen. I knew they were going to sink a lot of putts on those last two rounds, and even on Sunday afternoon when most U.S. Open courses are dying, uh, you know. They they weren't bumpy at all, and they were they were rolling, rolling smooth. And nobody pays attention to that fact. They just say, "Oh, it's 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 too easy." You know, that's you, you touched a life point in me, didn't you? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I didn't mean to. I wasn't even trying to be critical. Yeah. I've never played Aaron Hills, but I just you know I I think it's tough to see things that you know you create be changed. You know, especially if you're not the one that's changing them. So I was going with that. But okay, how about do you do you think that? As as another year and another year goes by, that that the view of the U.S. Open that year will change, and and Aaron, uh, Aaron Hills will be embraced as a as a really good golf course that just didn't get wind and worthy of another U.S. Open.
1: Hey, it's embraced as a good golf course, regardless. I, it's it's on Golf Digest's hundred greatest, and, and you know, I, I
0: as a, I should say, as a U.S. Riviera Open Riviera only course.
1: hosted one U.S. Open, and Ben Hogan set an all time scoring record at Riviera. I'm not saying that's why it didn't host another U.S. Open. But nobody doesn't say nobody says Riviera is a bad course. Riviera is one of the top courses in the country. Uh, it, it was great that it hosts the U.S. Open. Uh, I, I, it was great that Aaron Hills hosted the U.S. Open. If it hosts another U.S. Open, it's probably not be my lifetime, so I'm not going to worry about it. Um, I hope it does, but if not, it was a great U.S. Open, and uh, and it's 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 a worthy course for everyone to seek out and play, uh, you know, and it, and. And some are going to like it, some don't. And that's great. That's, it's, you know, it it is, it does represent a a certain area, a certain portion of Wisconsin. And that's the Kettle Marine area of Wisconsin.
0: Very well. Uh, When I've asked this question before, this is the last one. Some people choose not to answer. I'll take a, I'll take a run at you. I look at it as a way to kind of uh, promote somebody who might be unheralded. But let's say You and I are partners. We're going to develop a golf course. We've got a beautiful piece of land and a a healthy budget, and we want to go a different direction. What three or four architects would you be most interested in interviewing right now to design a golf course?
1: Well, you know, I haven't spent enough time with either the Australian architects or the European architects. I'd love to spend more time with Martin Ebert. I've talked a little bit with him, but he seems to be one of the, the it girls right now among the architecture and i've i've, I've corresponded and talked to them on the phone with with neil crafter but i've never met him and i'd love to spend time with him because he has a great great background and a great understanding i'd love to i've i've met uh mike uh collins once uh, at one of tom doke's functions but but i follow him and i'd like us to, to uh, pick his brain some more so i i guess Maybe this is a cop-out, but my answer is I feel like there are international architects that I need to, uh, to investigate. I've, you know, I'm, I know most of the American architects. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay. I lied. One last one. I ask this to almost everybody now, other than a course that you've been involved with, what's the best modern course that, or the modern course that just suits you and your sympathies the best?
1: I, I don't answer those questions because it's foolish of me to say I've got a favorite when I run the Golf Digest rankings. I will say that I have in my will that I want my ashes scattered on air, uh, on uh, Sand Hills, but that's because I'm a native Nebraskan, and my wife wants me to change that to some course in Hawaii.
0: So uh-huh. <laughs> you can divvy it up. Yeah. That's So one time you can be in two different places at once.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: Ron, this was yeah, this was a real thrill for me. You probably don't uh, understand how much it is. Um, I've been admi- an admirer of you and your work and your writing and your books for a long time. So I appreciate you sitting down and, and sharing this time.
1: Okay. Great talking to you, Derek. Okay, Ron. Thanks for having me.
0: So I thought, after 90 minutes of talking, that I could get the architecture editor of Golf Digest magazine to confess to me his favorite personal modern golf course. It was my Colonel Jessup moment and it didn't work. (laughs) Ron's too smart for that. But that was exciting for me to get to talk to him. I've wanted to do that for a long time. Whether he wants to downplay it or not, he is a prominent, influential, and important voice in golf architecture. Back in the 70s, he understood the importance of golf architecture, its history, and the architects themselves. Nobody else was really covering that at the time, and he basically got there first. A couple quick housekeeping notes. At the end of our talk, he mentioned some international architects, I believe he meant Mike Cocking instead of Mike Collins. Mike Cocking works at Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking, and Mead in Australia. Also, he said, he kind of lamented that in the Architects of Golf from 1993, he did not have a profile of Bill Kaur. He does. Bill Kaur did make it. I know his profile now, as you said, would be much longer. We hope, hopefully that updated edition, either online or in print, comes out soon. But uh, Bill Kaur did make your book. So he's in and all is good. Check me out on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. You can leave comments on FeedTheBall.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you would. Leave a star rating or review if you'd like. I'd like to thank Ron Witten once again for joining me. Thank you for listening. Thanks always to the Sundogs, to Lee and Will Haraway. And until we do this again next time, cheers. Cheers.